This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. The King James Bible. It is beloved, it is masterful, and it is a perennial bestseller. But for many Christians today, it's also seen as archaic and hard to understand, which makes for some contentious debate with other Christians who believe the King James Bible is the only one that Christians ought to use. My next guest makes the argument that the English Bible translations actually should be readable to the man on the street. Author and blogger Mark Ward is joining us now to talk about it and his book, Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Bible. So good to have you here, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. All right. I'm curious because we all have a history somewhat, I would say, with the King James Bible to one extent or another. But what's your own history with the King James? How have you used it or what has your opinion been throughout your life on the usage of the King James? My opinion has changed a bit over time, but I have used it for my entire life. And that continues to this day. It is among the number of Bible translations in English that I check on a very regular basis as part of my Bible study and teaching and writing. I did grow up using the King James. I memorized hundreds of verses from it. I spent a brief period of my high school years being pretty strongly, but hopefully not a jerk about it, King James only. Oh, yeah. And the the school I was attending that time, they were very gracious about that view. Um, and I picked that view up from them. I trusted what I was told. But over time, my viewpoint has changed so that I now see the King James as one among many good English Bible translations that we have. Very good. Well, this is interesting because my instances of interaction with King James only people can be quite intense at times. And I'm curious for those who didn't grow up being taught King James only, what are the basic arguments that are made in favor of saying we should only use the King James? Well, uh, actually, I have to say, my parents asked me to clarify that they were never King James only. <laughs> if I go on national radio, I need to make sure to say that. And Mom and Dad didn't do it. In the home. Yeah. Right. It wasn't their fault. Um, and again, I, I had the very best of King James onlyism. I really think I did. And so I got the very best arguments that they have. And, and personally, what I would call the best argument is let's all be really careful in shaking up the church. When everybody uses a common standard Bible translation, there's a certain level of healthy trust that everybody shares. And in my book, I write about the benefits of Scripture memory by osmosis. When everybody's using the exact same wording, you start to just pick up phrases from the Bible, and I think that's a great thing. I think, however, mainstream King James onlyism today has recognized that it can't make exclusive claims necessarily for the English translation. It instead tends to focus on the textual critical issues, that mm-hmm. is, which Greek and Hebrew texts did the King James translators use, and in, and further, they focused really on the, the Greek New Testament. Right. The Textus Receptus is the, is the text that was used by the King James translators, and what the King James-only movement today tends to say is that's the very best text. It is the traditional and preserved 
Word of God, and we should only use translations based on it. And hey, it just so happens that the King James is the only good translation based on it. That's their typical argument. Right. Now, this was the Textus Receptus when you're talking about this. Wasn't this the one compiled by Erasmus back in the 16th century? Originally, there are different editions of the Textus Receptus, but yes, basically it comes from the textual critical work of Erasmus. Okay. So now what is the argument in favor of saying we actually have better bases for the newer translations than we do for the King James? Because I've heard a lot of discussion about that and discussions about dynamic equivalence translations versus the you know, word for word. Um, how do you deal with the text issue of the accuracy of modern translations of the Bible as opposed to the King James? Because that, that's what it comes down to for a lot of Christians. They'll say, you know, they took this out of the modern Bible and this was in the King James. So clearly, if you're taking it out, you're tampering with God's word and the other side will say, well, we took it out because that's not in the earliest manuscripts. So how do we delve into that issue and understand it better? That's a fantastic question. And I chose to take a new tack on that question in my book, which was basically this. Okay, if you want to argue, and this is an important argument to have um, about, you know, which Greek text, you know, which manuscripts of the, of the Greek New Testament best reflect the original writings of the apostles? Um, the, how can you have a responsible view of that topic? Well, of course, like anything, you need to read up. But anybody who doesn't read Greek necessarily is taking their view on that topic from an authority or multiple authorities they, by definition, cannot look at the evidence because, as everybody on all sides of the issue agrees, that evidence is all written in Greek. (laughs) So just as if I, for example, took a strong view on which ancient Chinese texts of Confucius were the best manuscripts of Confucius, I think I'd, I'd like to think I could distinguish my view from that of the scholars on which I, you know, whom I'm trusting. And, and, And therefore, when when lay people to whom God has not given the opportunity or calling to learn Greek are arguing back and forth online about which Greek texts are best, I want to say, hey, stop, stop, wait a minute. Um, This is actually an argument about which authorities are worth trusting. Hmm. You know, is it D.A. Carson, you know, who wrote a book on uh, a plea for realism back in 1978 about the King James Only movement? Or is it somebody like D.A. Waite or Peter Ruckman on the other side? And that's a very different discussion. And I say, you know, that's such a hard discussion to have. People's uh, emotions are so inflamed about this. Let's set that aside. And for the purposes of my book, I said, let's talk only about something that all people who can read this book understand, and that is English. My book authorized the use and misuse of the King James Bible focuses solely on this issue. Should we be reading a vernacular English translation of the Bible, a contemporary English translation of the Bible? That's the issue. Well, that's a very important issue because the degree to which we can understand the Bible is the point of reading it. If we can't understand it, we can't very well, you know, we can memorize it, but if we don't understand it, it has limited effect. So where do you come down on this issue of the vernacular of the man on the street being able to read the Bible in his own language that's understandable and how that fits into the King James Bible debate? Well, uh, I think that this is the way to sort of shortcut the emotional debate. You know, I understand. I love the King James, too. I I think that some of the King James-only folks out there may have trouble believing that um, (laughs) if they hear that I'm criticizing their view at all because this is such an emotional issue. But it's emotional for me 
because these are the words I grew up with. I associate them with God's speech. I get it. Um, but where I come down on the issue of vernacular translation is where Paul comes down. And for me, if there's one thing that you know I learned the most from my own study to write this small book, it was this insight that 1 Corinthians 14 ties edification to intelligibility. Now, Paul is speaking about speaking in tongues, and those would be totally different languages. Um, however, I think that they, it, the principle applies here, because there are many words in the King James that everybody recognizes we don't use anymore. Besom, beeves, bold, beray, those are just some bees, you know, <laughs> all throughout the alphabet. We've got different words that are just dead. Right. They're not in English anymore. Right. Um, and should we have a translation that uses unintelligible words? I say, according to Paul, well, no. And then there's this additional problem. What about words that have changed their meaning in the last 400 years? Words that I call in my book, false friends. So for example, you'll have to read the book to get the insight on what this actually means. But when the Bible says, remove not the ancient landmark, it remove doesn't mean the same thing it did 400 years ago. Or, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, etc. The word commendeth doesn't mean what it used to mean. Right. Or the word halt, how long halt ye between two opinions. Those things have changed. So I'm able to encourage the use of vernacular translations without blaming the King James translators. I'm not saying they did anything wrong. I'm saying only that language has changed in 400 years in ways that modern readers should not be expected to keep track of. Yes, and that's a very interesting point, because if you are reading a word, for example, and I especially like what you said about these false friends, when you look at a particular word and you immediately go to the 2018 interpretation of that word, you may not even recognize that that's not what the Bible is saying, in which case it's really messing with your understanding of the text. A lot more to talk about. We're going to do so with Mark Ward when we come back talking about his book, Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options 
options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you here and great to have with us author and blogger Mark Ward. Authorized is the name of his book, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. We're talking about the importance of this great translation, but should we still be using it as the only version of the Bible that we read and memorize He is arguing no, because when we look at what these words sometimes in the King James Bible indicate to us, we may have a misunderstanding. Now, on the other issue, Mark, here's a question for you. When you talk about words that are contained within the King James Bible, for example, you say there are a lot of words that have just fallen out of favor. We don't even know what they mean. For the King James only defender, sometimes the response to that will be, well, then you should look it up. You know, just because you don't understand a word doesn't mean that we shouldn't use that Bible translation. You know, you might have to look up a word that appears in in another translation of the Bible. Why is that an argument? What do you say to those people? Well, I would first say that I said the very same thing when I was 18 years old. (laughs) And I am not arguing that we should dumb everything down in our cultural heritage. I think that Bible study is hard work and that I work for an ebook company. I work for Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible software, and I look things up all the time. And I'm, I encourage the people in my church when I teach Sunday school and preach to do so as well. But I, my heartbeat is derived from that of William Tyndall. I was William Tyndall in a school play at my King James only high school back in the late 90s. And I got to say these words, ere many years, I will cause that the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And here he's speaking to some Roman Catholic cleric. And, and that is still my heartbeat. I want the common man to understand. So the question is not, should we put a burden on him to understand? You know, the Bible does put a burden on people. Peter said that some of the things Paul wrote are hard to understand. We're never going to make the Bible easy if we're going to be faithful. But are we adding unnecessary difficulties and burdens to Bible readers by insisting that the that they read the Bible in an English that no one in the world speaks or writes anymore? That's my argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, now, one of the things, I'll, I'll throw this into the mix just because it's something that comes up in my life on a daily basis. I get frustrated. I use a lot of online Bible uh, passage lookup during the course of the day when I'm preparing for my radio work. And one of the things that happens to me oftentimes is I'll end up with a translation in which they're into the gender neutrality, which drives me crazy. And and this tends to be another argument that King James only people will say, you know what, you don't have to worry about that stuff. When you're reading the King James, you don't have to worry about bringing the uh, gender madness into the translations and, you know, making sure that you say they instead of he or or, you know, making things more gender neutral. What about that issue? How does that how do you deal with that? Are there better? translations of the Bible that you think are better than the King James in terms of understandability, but are not messing with that particular issue? They're faithful to the old way of speaking as the Bible originally did? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. One is a simple yes. I mean, you pick up your New American Standard Bible, and it's a translation into contemporary English, um, and it still uses the masculine gender pronouns just the way the King James would. 
Um, I think I, I think the second answer is that we really do need to ask ourselves. Um, we, we need to understand not only what God originally said, and of course that's the most important thing, but we need to place those words in actual contemporary English. There are some instances in which if you specify a masculine gender pronoun, people are genuinely confused. We, and that's because English has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that is because gender revolutionaries have changed it. But I've been carefully observing, even conservative, you know, Bible-believing people like myself who are complementarian, how do we use English? And I, I, I'd want to give the opportunity to trusted teachers of the church to make a careful assessment of that and if, it, if English ever does change, we do need to keep up with it. I don't think Bible translation should be on the cusp of that change. I don't think they should be trendy or faddish. I don't think the Bible should say, I know, right? You know, something that just <laughs> good. sounds That's like good. <laughs> 2018. Yeah. Um, but I do think we want people to read it and, and, no, and not notice the language at all, you know? Yeah. They don't want to, I don't want them thinking about when did this language come from. I just want them reading and focused on the content. Yeah, I think that's a separate issue. Um, it definitely needs to be discussed. But um, I, I think the big issue for the, my King James-only brothers, brothers and sisters whom I love is, can we use a vernacular translation into contemporary English of whatever he, Hebrew and Greek text you prefer? Yes. But now we're to the other issue, the deeper issue on that one question, which is, is it tampering with God's word to come up with all these new translations? Because they'll say there are all these new translations and there are these thought for thought translations and there are some word for word translations and those are better. But then you have some that are just awful because they're just, you know, put in story form or what have you at what point are you tampering with God's word? How would you deal with that issue of the fine line between doing a translation that's in the vernacular versus tampering with the original text? I have used all of the major modern evangelical English Bible translations for going on about 20 years in my personal Bible study. When I was 18 or 19, I can't remember now, I bought a comparative study Bible that had them all laid out, you know, four different translations, a big thick book. I still got it in my office now. And what I found was over and over and over again, checking the multiple translations from the more formal or literal to the more functional or dynamic helped me understand. Mm -hmm. And I do, I'm a very conservative Christian. Um, I went to Bob Jones University and got a PhD there. I try to live a holy life. Um, I'm not a gender revolutionary by any means. Um, And I've always felt like a lot of the issues that people bring up to complain about the new translations, just they feel like red herrings to me because I just go back to the many times when the New International Version, uh, the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, all the times they helped me understand. So do I think that educated, um, do I think that Christians should be educated about uh, gender in translation and about the basic differences between dynamic uh, and formal literal translations? I think they should be. I think uh, pastors should do what I did in my church, and that is teach on bibliology in Sunday school, and therefore equip people to take up the riches, the embarrassment of riches we have in English Bible translation. Okay, once you know about these gender issues, the vast majority of what the even the today's new international version does has nothing to do with gender you can still get benefit from the work of these bible translators who are just trying to teach the bible to the church i do think people need to be educated but i don't think they should be scared i think they should take up um, all of these riches 
Now, do you think, though, when we're seeing all these different translations, we all run into this problem going to church some days where you have maybe the NIV in the pew, but you brought your ESV, the guy next to you brought the NASB, the guy next to him has the King James, and then the pastor has the Common English Bible. Let's just say to throw one out there. So everybody uh-huh. open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 or 14, let's say. Uh, wait a minute. We all have different words. And so the King James only people will say, see, you need one because the Bible has its authority chipped away when you have all these different translations. You can't all come together and read the same verse. What about the practical use of the Bible in the church when you have so many different translations? Because that seems like an argument that's at least worth responding to, that it is frustrating when you have so many translations that everybody has a different verse uh, to, to look at when you're reading the Bible in church. Sure. This is a prudential question that I would want to leave up to pastoral leadership. However, if, you know, what's a pastor going to do nowadays? You know, check people's Bible translations at the door. Right. They're, they're going to bring their phones in, <laughs> and they're going to have all these translations. And partly it's my company's fault, okay? Logos Bible Software can give you dozens of translations on your phone, yes. and I use them while I'm in church listening to my pastor. Um, and yes, I mean, can confusion happen? I, I think so. The very few times when I've seen confusion happen... In fact, I, I just love this. There's a lady that was a very faithful Bible student. Um, she's j- just a, quote-unquote, secretary at my office in, in a job I used to work at. But she would come to me with these great questions. How come the Spanish Bible says this and the English Bible says this? Mm-hmm. And every time, it was a great learning opportunity. Um, I, I think that if you come across differences like that, it's a great opportunity for your curiosity to be aroused about Bible study and for gifted and trained pastoral leadership to help you. Another thing I'd say is that um, my good brothers and sisters in the King James Only movement, um, the mainstream, they are trying to distinguish themselves from the views of a Peter Ruckman that you may be familiar with, yes. who would say that the King James itself is inspired yes. you know, and, and perfect. Um, however, if you insist on the use of only one English Bible, what tends to happen with lay people who haven't been given opportunity to study Greek and Hebrew and God's providence is that they associate God's authority, his ultimate authority, with these English words. And are they God's words? Yes. But we do have to add, insofar as they are accurately translated, the ultimate locus of authority in the Christian church are these inspired Greek and Hebrew originals. Right. And using multiple Bible translations in church is a way of reminding people, hey, um, we're not claiming, the Bible never claims that any translation is perfect. In fact, throughout the history of the church, Augustine, Miles Coverdale, who finished William Tyndall's Bible translation, have said the same thing. The King James translators did the same thing. They would provide multiple translations in the margins, or people like Coverdale would say, check multiple different translations. And in the checking of them all, you'll, you'll get all the meaning that the inspired writers of Scripture had to give you. I think it's healthy to use multiple translations. I'm not worried about the confusion. I think the confusion can easily be answered, and that will help people's Bible study. Very good. Well, obviously, you take advantage of all these different translations to learn, as you said, and cross-connect and compare and contrast. What about your favorite Bible translation? Do you have one? That's the, uh, well, $64,000 question doesn't sound very impressive anymore due to inflation. (laughs) billion question, okay? So I wrote a blog post for the Logos blog a couple years ago, which Bible translation is best? 
And the subtitle of that post was my answer, all the good ones. I tried when I was early in seminary to figure out, okay, which one's best, the ESV, which had just come out, or the New American Standard, you know, right. and those still are two of my favorites. Right. And I made, I made this careful chart, you know, comparing them and uh, contrasting them and rating them, um, different readings all over the Bible, until I finally got to a point where I realized they're neck and neck. And which, why would I want a best one when I'm using them both and profiting from them both? Very I think good. that's the wrong question. We need to get a useful translation, not the best one. Sounds good. Well, the name of the book, Authorized, Mark Ward with us. Mark, great to have had you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Janet. All right. Take care. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back, and it is a difficult thing when you're stuck in a job you don't like or a job you don't want. And many Christians have aspirations toward a better career or better opportunities, but don't quite know how to get there. So we're going to get some help on that today. Joining us now is Robert Dickey III. He is the president of Crown and a career advisor who's also served as a decorated Air Force officer. And he is here today to talk about having a biblical worldview on work as he offers us some advice on how to have a more satisfying career. His book is called Love Your Work four practical ways you can pivot to your best career. Bob, thank you for being with us. It's great to have you. Oh, it's such an honor to be on your program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, I think this is so important, and I wanted to start with a very important aspect that you address in the book, and that is the biblical worldview of work. I think there are a lot of Christians who say, I don't know if my work has any meaning. I don't know if work really matters. Work is a curse, if you go back to Genesis. But what would you say about how to approach the the biblical basis for evaluating your work? Well, I'd like to go all the way back to Genesis and remind folks that there was work before the curse, before the fall. Yeah. And if you kind of take a look at it, you know, it, it's very clear in Genesis, God was the first worker. and He took a great joy and pride in his work, uh, and he rested from his work. And then he was the first employer. Uh, he hired Adam to do a job, or he created Adam to do a job, and he made him a steward in the garden and gave Adam great responsibilities. And work was very much a part of Adam's identity in his relationship with his creator, God. Now, work changed, obviously, after the fall, but it's still very much the work that we have, even to this day, the work that you and I and everyone that's listening, that we have, that we do, it's very much a part of our identity and part of our uh, relationship with our creator, God. So, you know, I believe that we are called to, to love our work and to do, do our work joyfully under the Lord. And it's through the work of our hands. It's when we are in alignment with God, we're doing what we've been created to do, that we can have impact in the world. We can have impact in our communities. And I think the world needs more people who are fully engaged, excited about what they're doing, and realizing that whether their work, their job is big or small, 
uh, it's all important in God's eyes and that we all have an impact and a role to play in the world around us. Yeah, that's very, very good. So when you look at the job prospects that people have now, obviously we have an economy that has shifted from agrarian to industrial. Now we're in the global economy. What sorts of challenges would you say are out there right now for people, especially young people getting out of college and trying to start out? And, you know, it used to be you'd, you'd wait around for the gold watch and work one place for 40 years. That's not really the case anymore. Well, the, the challenges are many, and I, I highlight as many of them as possible in, in the book. Uh, and, and what we're having is we have an old economy, as you've mentioned, that is dying, and a new economy that is being completely reborn right in front of us. The world is changing at a rapid pace, uh, more quickly than it's ever ever has in human history. And what's happening is it's making folks feel uncomfortable. We, we're seeing the tensions. When I, whether I speak in Hong Kong and Taipei, or I'm over in Europe, or no matter where I'm at globally, People on Main Street in those communities have the exact same issues. And what, what we need to do is we need to understand the old economy may be dying, but as the new economy is being born, there's all sorts of new opportunities for us to take advantage of. We just have to pivot into those uh, right streams, those right areas of opportunity. There's a way to do it. Uh, but if we consistently try to play the, the, uh, the game, by the old rules, we're going to fail. And so some of the new rules in this new economy is we have to be willing to pivot multiple times in our career. Uh, Young millennials coming in today, they're not going to have one job and retire after 40 years at General Motors or GE. They're going to have anywhere from 8 to 14 different careers in their lifetime. Hmm. And some of those careers may not uh, overlap. There, There may be gaps in employment. We saw during the last recession, you know, some people were out of work three, six, months all the way up to a year before they were able to find work again. So we have to engineer our life differently. We have to look at things differently so that we can have success in this new economy. Now, you said something very interesting there, because normally when people talk about how many different jobs you have, you know, maybe saying you'll have a number of jobs over the course of your career, you use the word careers. So is that implying that in the course of working, a lot of millennials will flip different industries or possibly do completely different types of jobs, not necessarily all in the same industry. Absolutely. There, you, you, you will find, and we're watching it today, people who are in the automotive industry that are pivoting into technology, uh, people who have been in sales in one particular industry, and they're moving into uh, the healthcare realm. And so what's happening is there's underlying skill sets, uh, leadership abilities, the ability to problem solve and think critically, uh, but there's underlying skills that can transition into a multitude of different industries. So just because you're in the automotive space and you hear about automotive jobs that are being moved overseas or companies that are downsizing, you don't have to be looking for work in that sector. Uh, You can be looking for work, leveraging your skills, leveraging your abilities, but saying, oh, you know what? I hear that the technology sector is booming. I hear that green energy is booming. Uh, These areas where there's going to be great growth for the next 20 years, pivot out of a dying industry into an industry that's going to have a lot of growth. And we're watching people do it all around us. And so that's one of the things that I recommend and kind of some of the practical principles that I try to highlight in the book. Yeah. Now, you talk about the different points at which you would pivot if you pivot early in your career, if you pivot late in your career. It depends, obviously, on the individual and the situation. What would be some of the different circumstances in which you would advise pivoting early as opposed to pivoting late? 
Well, there's going to be, no matter where we're at within our career, I mean, I've, I've seen folks and counseled folks who are baby boomers who are in their 70s who had to make a, a, a pivot for an on, uh, encore career. Uh, they didn't have the, enough retirement savings, and they made uh, ch- adjustments and changes. And I see young millennials who picked a, uh, a college degree or they picked a career path based on what mom or dad you know, really pushed them into, and they thought, oh, this is going to be, uh, exciting work, and I'm going to love it. They get in, it's like, oh, I hate it. I'm misaligned. I'm not doing really what I'm gifted at. I need to completely change. And we're watching, I've seen uh, uh, millennials who are uh, in the legal career field and have pivoted into ministry work and, and vice versa. I know a pastor who led a large church in Michigan, and he was like, you know what, I feel like God's calling me to serve in the legal profession. He pivoted in that. So regardless of age, we have to be ready and willing for those opportunities that come our way. A lot of times it requires us to add some new skills, maybe get a little bit of retraining. But one of the things that I, I, I share with folks is that when we're in that stage, a lot of times people have this understanding deep down that they need to make a change, but they're so afraid to do it. Right. And the most important thing is to take that first step. Once we've got a good game plan, we've got had wise counselors, don't be afraid to make that step because the people who do, the folks who make that step in that leap, uh, it, it ushers in all sorts of new opportunities and a new chapter in their life. And I have not met a person yet who has made a career pivot who has said, boy, that was a mistake. I, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't done it. What do you think you need to keep in mind, though, if you're going to take a leap? For example, you think about somebody who's maybe 40 and says, I'm kind of in the middle of my career now. Do I make a big leap? Do I dial back? Do I try to find an an opportunity within the company where I am working right now and try to move up? How do you advise somebody to make those sorts of decisions? Stay put or make the leap of faith into a new opportunity? Well, the very first thing I ask folks when, when they uh, approach me about making one of these leaps, I'll say, well, why do you want to leave? What's the motivating factor? And here, here's something that's very important. It is important not to run from something, but to run to something. And a lot of times, people who are in the midst of a career transition, if you really drill into it, they're like, oh, I hate my boss, or I don't like my job, or I wish I was making more money. Uh, there's a, a source of conflict. That, those are things that people are running away from, as opposed to there being a great opportunity that's in front of them that they're running to. And so sometimes, one of the, 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 the best pivots that we can make is the pivot to stay. And I have a whole section in the book regarding that. It's like sometimes the greatest opportunities for us are making slight adjustments and staying with the organization, but opening up new opportunities right where we're at. Now, sometimes we might be in a, uh, a career field that is dying. Let's say it's an industry. We know that it's on the downward slope. We know that with regulation or, or things that are happening, those jobs are going away. And we want to move into a different sector, an, a sector of opportunity and growth. With those individuals, say, look, first of all, specifically if you're mid-career, if you have a spouse, your spouse has to be on board with you. I mean, this is not a decision that you make in a black box by yourself. Make sure that you are united as a team. That is great. You know what? Hang on just a second. We have more to talk about, but we do need to go to a very quick break. Robert Dickey III, Love Your Work is his book, and we'll return right after this.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the Word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible Leak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today talking about some practical ways that you can pivot into your best career. It really is the case that we have meaning in our work as Christians. And the name of the book we're discussing is Love Your Work by Robert Dickey III. So, Bob, we were talking about making career changes and especially those who are in midlife. Do I leave just because I hate my boss or I hate what I'm doing? One of the things you mentioned is that if you leave, you want to go to a better opportunity, but you definitely want to make sure that your spouse is on board. Wanted to let you pick up on that thought. Yeah, so that's the very first place that I uh, counsel folks to make sure that if you have a spouse, make sure that they're on board. This is a team effort when you're, whenever you're making that uh, career adjustment. Uh, secondly, you know, the Bible says that there's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and I've, I've counseled multitude of people where they've had this idea and it makes a lot of sense, but when, then when they start to ask other people, hey, what do you think? You know, mentors and advisors, people have different perspectives. So make sure that you have counselors that are giving you some wise counsel and helping you make this very important decision. You know, another, another step in the process is truly understanding how God made us and wired us. A lot of times we'll have people that are mid-career, and they're unhappy with their job, or they, they need a better opportunity for their family, and they're picking uh, jobs that they think are going to be exciting, titles and positions that they think they're going to bring fulfillment, careers that might offer more income. And when we make decisions uh, based on those metrics alone, a lot of times we're going to end up uh, being miserable and not being fulfilled. Yeah. That's right. If we're not living in God's alignment. But if we truly understand how God made us and created us 
and we pick a career that's in, that, in alignment with that, now we know we're going to have ultimate success. So I, I encourage people to take a career direct assessment and truly understand the unique skills and passions and values that God's given you and pick a job and a career that's in alignment with those those things. Yeah, and you touched on something that I think is worth talking about a little bit. One of the things that, that can often make somebody want to leave or absolutely leave is having a lousy boss, somebody who's either incompetent or just has a horrible personality or is mean or tyrannical or all these boss horror stories that you can hear. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you're working in a company of any size, Bosses come and go, and you could maybe go to another area of that same company, do the work you like, and escape that one person. How much do you encounter people leaving jobs because they didn't like the boss? Oh, it happens all the time. I, I, I hear almost on a weekly basis someone who's got a story where they're like, I, I've got to leave because of this personality conflict. A lot of times it's with a boss. Many times it's with a coworker. And one of the things that I always remind them is, look, a relationship is 50-50. And if you're involved in a relationship, you're 50% part of the problem or you're 50% part of the solution. But look, if, if you don't learn how to deal with those, uh, those conflicts, running away from it, especially early in your career, you're going to end up running into those exact same situations somewhere else. So look at sometimes we, we need to look at those, those conflicts or those obstacles that might be in our way and realize, hey, this is an opportunity for me to grow. This is an opportunity to, for, for me to be able to flex my muscles, for me to be able to learn some emotional intelligence, some people skills, and especially for young people. If you can learn those skills early in your career, you're going to be leveraging them through your entire career. And it really is a, a make it or break it aspect for many careers. As you rise in leadership, and influence within a company, more and more people are saying IQ is not a determining factor in success. No. It is actually our EQ, our ability to deal with people, to communicate, to, to problem solve. And so I really encourage folks early in their career, grow those muscles, grow your emotional intelligence. And so if you're faced with one of those problems, don't look at it as something to run away from, but actually a great opportunity that God may be placing in front of you to be able to grow that skill set. Right. You never know. Now, you talk about the four career quadrants, which I found to be very interesting. Reinvent, revector, repurpose, renew. What are you talking about there? Well, what I found is I chatted with people around the country and around the world is that we all fall within one of those four career quadrants. Now, what we aspire to, what everyone aspires to, is to be in this zone of renewal. This is where we have high opportunity and we have high probability of success, high passion, high passion for what we're doing and high opportunity for uh, achievement and success within our career. Now, if we find ourselves in that zone, if we don't do anything, we just kind of sit there and we're, we're lethargic and we're not continuing to add skills and, and increase in our value, the world's going to pass us by. So it's really easy for us to fall out of that zone. So it takes work to stay there. Now, there may be people in the other three quadrants. Now, one of the ones that we find, especially around 2007, 2008, during the Great Recession, was the zone of, uh, re- not renewal, but it was the, the, the zone of revectoring. People found that they had uh, high passion for what they were doing, but it was a low opportunity. You know, like, boy, you know, the, the world has changed. I no longer have this opportunity at this investment bank or this company. They're downsizing. They're offshoring. I really like what I want to do, but I'm just going to have to move somewhere else in the economy. So there's an ever so slight pivot or adjustment. So maybe you move into a similar type role or similar type job in a different place within the economy, 
Uh, and so there's a whole series of practical application and steps for us to be able to uh, slightly uh, re-vector in our careers. At the same time, people who there, there's folks that need to uh, repurpose themselves. So maybe they have a great deal of opportunity where they're at, but they're no longer passionate for it. They just realize, you know what, God's called me to something else. God's called me to something more. I feel like I'm being called to do something different. And so they completely uh, repurpose their life. And in, in, the, in my book, I chronicle a, uh, a young man who was an attorney, and uh, he was about ready to be made partner. And in, right, he walked in that very morning and said, you know what, I'm turning this down. I feel like God's calling me into full-time ministry. And he went into, uh, he went into the seminary at Baylor University, and uh, he's now a a pastor having a great impact. And so sometimes we need to completely repurpose ourselves. Uh, And the the final zone is the zone of reinvention. And this sometimes can be the most challenging, but this is a a place where people will find themselves or like there's not a great opportunity and they're they're no longer passionate for what they're doing. Um, Sometimes people have been fired from a job or the company has gone out of business. And they wake up one morning and they're like, you know what? I just need to completely reinvent myself. I want to go in a completely different direction. And it may seem like it's, uh, it's, it's challenging and it's hard, but there's a way to do it. And it may take a little more work than the other two zones that we've just talked about. But the, the folks that do it, I've seen success after success where people have been in one sector and they've been able to move into a new sector. They've gone from the automotive space into the healthcare space, or they've moved into the technology space. And so this is where you rebirth a brand-new career. Uh, and I'm, I've watched people even late in life, uh, late-stage late baby boomers. Like I mentioned that earlier, uh, folks who want to have an encore career. Uh, and so reinvention is something that we all need to know how to do because we may need to do that within our within our lifetime. Exactly. The resilience factor is so key. So when we talked about this a few minutes ago about, you know, having these transcending career skills, things that you could apply in a number of different industries, for a lot of people, they'll say, I don't know what the skills I have uh, are that would be something I could use in another industry. In other words, they don't see in themselves what might be valuable in another career. How do you guide people along those lines? Well, one of the, one of the things that I, I talk about is that you have to know yourself to be able to lead yourself. And so if you don't know what those things are, it, it is so important for you to sit down and take some type of an assessment of your abilities, your values, your passions, your skills, and to truly know what your strengths and weaknesses are. It's one of the reasons why I highlight multiple times throughout the book for folks to get a career direct assessment, because I think it's one of the best tools for you to take a a, a deep dive assessment of your skills and your abilities. And so now that you know what those are, you're able to say, here are the areas, here are the career areas where I can leverage my abilities and have the greatest opportunity for impact and for success. Uh, But some of the ones, some of the skills that as I've been interviewing CEOs around the country that are timeless, that I I think all people can be working on and add these to their repertoire. Uh, First of all, it's work ethic and hustle. We, uh, the, the, the work ethic today is just not the same as it was um, a, a generation or two ago. Absolutely. And people who have a strong work ethic get to work, and they, they, they can, they're dependable, they're trustworthy, and they prove themselves in that manner. They rise to the top of every single organization, and people are looking for people with strong work ethic. Uh, a couple other ones, uh, problem solving. There's a big difference between a, an employee who comes to work, sits down wherever they're at, and waits for the boss to come and tell them, hey, here's what I need you to do. 
versus an employee who has situational awareness and says, I'm going to start solving problems for the organization. I'm going to think a couple of steps ahead. I'm going to solve problems for my boss. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, no, such good tips. And I think all of this is so important, especially as we're considering that whatever we're doing, as Colossians 3.23 says, we're working at it with all our hearts as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Well, the name of the book is Love Your Work. Robert Dickey III with us. Bob, it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be on your show, Janet. Thank you so much. Okay, you take care. Thanks again. And thank you for tuning in today to Janet Meffer Today. We'll see you next time. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you by Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.